0: Use power
1: Hour. Well, good afternoon. It's the 24th of November. That means it's Wednesday all day, almost the end of the week. Can you believe it? One more day for of hour of power for you. That'll be coming up tomorrow night. Remember uh, on this program. We have four days of the week that we give you the Biz News Power Hour. And then for Fine Music Radio, on a Friday, we have Carrie's Corner where Carrie Adams talks wine. But in tonight's show, well, a bit of controversy. We're talking about Regulation 28, a lengthy discussion that I had today with Magnus Haystick, recently returned from Mauritius. And we got talking about how Mauritius works with its exchange control and whether they have anything like Reg 28. And of course, that was like a red rag to the Magnus Haystack bull. He started talking about how Reg 28, which is a, well, it could be collusion, collusion between Treasury and the local asset management companies, where they force retirement savings in South Africa, 70% thereof, to stay in South Africa. Now, that might not be a bad idea on paper, and you might even be able to argue that because you're retiring in South Africa, you should really be building your wealth in RANDs. The trouble with all of this is that South African investment performance has been appalling over the last 10 years. And as a consequence of this Regulation 28, which was introduced in 2010, anybody who's put their money into retirement annuities or retirement funds and enjoyed a modest tax benefit has paid for it and then some in the underperformance of South African equities and other investments relative to those internationally. And it just doesn't make sense. Of course, there will be some eloquent arguments from local asset management companies as to why Regulation 28 is a good thing. In reality, it's a very bad thing for the retiree. And the reason for that is that the performance of the investments has been far, far greater greater in the 99.5% of the investment universe, which is outside of South Africa. When you have a look at it in those kind of terms, you've got to scratch your head as Magnus haystick does. He's one of the few voices who could actually come out and say this because Magnus has his own business. He's an independent financial advisor. He's not linked to any asset management company. And if they tried to tell him that he should be doing this uh, in supporting the local asset managers, he'd tell them to take a flying jump. Anyway, it's an interesting discussion and it's very much the kind of thing that journalism is all about. Isn't that so, Justin Rowe Roberts? We are here to serve our community and try and help the, uh, the globally thinking South African to Prepare their own wealth basket uh, for their own retirement.
2: Agreed, Alec. It's great to have guys like Magnus share his opinion. Um, and when his opinion is backed up by facts like it is, the 70 30 a- allocation towards a global investment for- portfolio hasn't worked since 2010. As you said, the re- returns in South Africa have far underperformed that of developed markets. I think the business portfolio just goes to show that uh, how exponential companies, especially, Um, In this day and age, uh, companies that have led the technological advance that we're all benefiting from day to day, whether it's Apple or Microsoft using their products on a daily basis all over the world. And investors have benefited from that. And Magnus um, being independent as he is, is um, looking out for good change, which is what it's all about.
1: Yeah, it is indeed. So according to Reg 28, 70% of your portfolio has to be kept in South Africa. You may only invest 30% internationally. And as a consequence of that, you've missed out if you are going through normal retirement funds on a very good run for international equity markets over the next ten, over the last 10 years. One doesn't know just what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Only the good Lord above has got any inkling about what happens in the future. But certainly, Uh, If you are restricted to half a percent of the investable universe, it's ridiculous to think that you can perform as well as someone who's able to invest 99.5%. And actually what Magnus has done with his customers, his clients, is he said to them, don't invest in these tax benefit uh, retirement investments. In other words, retirement annuities and so on. Don't even touch them because the penalty that you get by investing in them by being forced to invest in 70% in South Africa, is far greater than what you'll be gaining in taxes. So you deal in numbers all the time. That's your game. It's interesting when you sit down and put things into a spreadsheet and you start looking at the numbers, how the facts jump out at you, which are not always that easy to absorb when you're just discussing a narrative.
2: South Africa is such a small part of the global economy that it just makes sense to have a diversified portfolio that gets exposure to these developed markets and these good things happening all over the world.
1: So lots coming up on that subject with Magnus Haystack. That's after we've received the latest updates from our partners at the Financial Times of London. And then you'll be hearing from Melanie Van She's the chief executive of the Peter Maritzburg Chamber of Business. It's a, a cracking interview. And what Melanie will tell you is that unless the government moves to punish those who caused the riots in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng in July, business will not return to Peter Maritzburg, to the capital of KZN. It's very sobering. And then we'll be hearing from Matthew van der Welt, who's uh, with VNL Y&R, talking to Jeremy Maggs about dark marketing, and it is as interesting as it sounds. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And here's the headlines of the day with Nadia Swat.
3: The Helen Sussman Foundation, the DA and AFRI Forum have approached the courts to have Jacob Zuma sent back to jail saying that there has been absolutely no indication that the former president is terminally ill, making the granting of his medical parole unlawful. The former president spent one month in escort prison in July, was moved to hospital in August and released on medical parole in September. The groups argued in court on Tuesday that the medical parole was granted against the recommendation of the Medical Parole Board and Zuma's outings after being released were proof that he was fine. Zuma's lawyers called the applicants racist and right-wing. No specific ailments were mentioned, but the legal team said Zuma needs 24-hour care that he cannot get in jail. The Department of Home Affairs is fighting to stop fraud-accused Atul Gupta from attaining a South African passport, saying that allowing such would be akin to enabling him to travel and in effect assist him in escaping criminal prosecution in South Africa. Gupta is currently a fugitive from justice with a warrant out for his arrest. He faces charges of fraud and money laundering under the Prevention of Organized Crime Act. An application for a new South African passport was dismissed earlier this year, and Gupta's legal team has applied to have this decision overturned. Home Affairs said that fugitives have no standing to litigate in the country's courts. With councils now established in all three major metros in Gauteng, the DA has emerged as the biggest winner taking leadership roles in Johannesburg, Trane and Ikudeleni. However, the victory comes with a caveat that the roles come as a result of smaller political parties with no formal coalition agreements in place. The party will need to lobby smaller players to pass important things like budgets and policies, and this could result in very volatile governance over the next five years. The ANC, meanwhile, has been left licking its wounds with reports of infighting and turmoil Within its ranks in Hateng. And now it's back to my colleague Justin for the market report.
2: Thanks, nods. The JSE share index was slightly lower at seventy thousand seven hundred. Nods. The JSE share index was slightly lower at seventy thousand seven hundred. Fifteen rand ninety two cents to the dollar, twenty one rand twenty six cents to the pound, and seventeen rand eighty four cents to the euro. Gold is lower at one thousand seven hundred eighty two dollars an ounce rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. crude is trading at $82 a barrel and Bitcoin is flat, trading at around the 900,000 rand level. In the financial news, furniture and appliance retailer Lewis Group says high levels of inventory are helping to offset global supply chain challenges, with merchandise sales rising by more than a fifth in its half year to end September. The group's good stock position is in a competitive advantage going into Black Friday and the festive season. South Africa's largest furniture change set on Wednesday as it increased its half year dividend by 46% to 2 Rand per share, about a R130 million Rand payout. Merchandise sales increased by 21% to 2 billion Rand to end September, whilst operating profit rose 24% to 340 million, with collections improving despite pressure on consumers.
1: This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
4: Today is Wednesday, November 24th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Today, we'll pick apart the Biden administration's announcement that it will release crude oil from America's reserves.
5: Some people have described it as the strategic political reserve as opposed to the strategic petroleum reserve.
4: Our U.S. energy editor, Derek Brower, explains how the move might have backfired. An FT video journalist and producer, Donnell Newkirk, will talk about his documentary on the music business and how artists navigate the changing industry landscape. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Yesterday, the U.S. government said it will authorize the release of 50 million barrels of crude oil from the country's Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR. That's the equivalent of about two and a half days' worth of U.S. oil consumption. The White House said that the goal is to bring down fuel prices, but oil prices actually ended up higher. The FT's U.S. energy editor, Derek Brower, says commodities markets knew this was coming and weren't impressed.
5: All in all, the market looked at this and thought, "Ah, that's not a huge amount compared to what we were expecting. And anyway, in a couple of weeks' time, OPEC, which the U.S. administration has been asking to increase supply, may decide to do the opposite, may withhold some planned increases, or may even cut, some analysts believe. And so when you factor all those things in, the impact on prices was not quite what the administration hoped. Prices have risen, not come down.
4: So, Derek, is this a blunder on the part of the White House? Did it miscalculate the oil market?
5: Some analysts say that the administration just isn't very well equipped to handle the nuances of the oil market. I think that may be a bit unfair. It has lots of very bright people working in it. I think actually it's working just fine for the administration in terms of what the administration wanted to do with an SPR release, which is signal to Americans who are about to drive home for the Thanksgiving holiday to see their mother-in-law, uh, to signal to them that they were acting to try to drive down petrol prices, gasoline prices. Even if it doesn't work, they can now blame OPEC and Saudi Arabia and Russia. And for the US administration, that's important because inflation across the economy is such a huge drain on, on President Biden's popularity at the moment.
4: So it sounds like more of a political move then.
5: Yeah, some people have described it as uh, the strategic political reserve as opposed to the strategic petroleum reserve, this reserve that, was, that the White House announced yesterday it was going to tap and release oil from. And some other people have described it as a symbolic move.
4: The U.S. is actually coordinating this oil release with several other big countries, including the U.K., also China. How common is
5: this? Well, this is really interesting as well because the last time that the US got involved in a coordinated release was in 2011 when there was a civil war in Libya, which is a big oil producer, and Libya's oil production was pretty much shut off. So that was a genuine oil supply emergency and prices, oil prices were heading, you know, north of $120. Today, there is no real emergency in terms of supply. In fact, supply is increasing around the world. What there is is a political emergency for President Biden about inflation in the US. So the International Energy Agency in the past would coordinate these emergency releases. This time, the IEA was not involved in coordinating this. And some IEA members like Germany were quite hostile to the idea of using emergency reserves of petroleum that are there for supply disruptions like hurricanes or or civil wars.
4: Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. energy editor. The way we listen to music is so different than it used to be. It's largely because of technology. People have so many ways to listen to music now, and artists have new ways to make a living. FT video producer Donnell Newkirk documented the journey of his own cousin, the artist-producer Dirty Blonde. Donnell dropped the video on our website earlier this year.
6: This film is about the evolution of the music business. The industry has gone digital, with streaming now reigning supreme.
4: Donnell so- told us what inspired him to make the film.
6: Watching my cousin, Dirty Blonde, watching him in the, at the beginning of his journey, uh, I, I just wanted to document everything and really show an insider's perspective of the music industry in 2020 and beyond, the current music industry. Um, I've seen other documentary films. I was really inspired by Hoop Dreams and and uh, in The Last Dance, Michael Jordan's Last Dance. Um, So I just wanted to show what the music industry was from the inside. My name is Dirty Blonde. I'm a recording artist and record producer. I'm from upstate New York. I've been trying to make it in the industry for about two years now. We grew up in the church, our grandparents, so we're all pretty musically inclined. Singing in the choir, playing instruments. He played the drums since he was like a toddler. And so, when he started making music, it was kind of just a natural transition. As with, I think, every artist, you know, they start out with that dream of getting a record deal and making it big, but you have to adjust. Uh, it's not easy to get a record deal, it's not easy to get yourself out there as an artist. As you see in the documentary, at 300 records, trying out, performing for a record label, playing his, all his music, singing his heart out, giving it all he had essentially a tryout for the record label and they gave him his feedback and then they'll they'll see if they want to work with him or not based on his music and his character and, and things like that, his charisma. So yeah, we've seen it all. He's, he's went from record label meetings to independent platforms and releasing music online, things like that. Watching him ad- adjust and finding platforms to where you can put your music out there independently and then marketing himself on social media and and things like that, you just had to adjust and and go with you know what the trends are and to stay relevant. Before COVID happened, I was about to do a festival, but because of the virus, it, it got shut down. So now I'm I'm doing a virtual live performance with eMusic Live. It's just a new way of 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 entertainment. It's a new way of of revenue too as an artist, you know.
4: It's not just artists. Record labels have had a huge adjustment as well. Labels once dominated the industry. And a lot of people would say they exploited artists with terrible contracts. Donnell interviewed several record label executives for his documentary.
7: What's the right choice for an artist? Kind of up for the artist to decide, right? I think today artists probably have more choices. And so it's hard. Whereas in the
2: past, it was simple. You really have one path, which was through a major record label.
8: And I believe
6: that uh, artists should do whatever deal is best for them. Some artists don't need a lot of money. And he got it.
4: Because the labels are so flush with cash right now from streaming, um, as they compete with each other for talent, they're also driving up the price of signing talent. All that means that that artists are really in a a better position to negotiate contracts, and they can now um, command bigger advances, better terms, like higher royalty rates, or even ownership of their masters. So the label is just acting as a distributor
6: some artists don't need the label. You can blow up on TikTok, you can distribute your music independently, and therefore you automatically own your masters and you own the majority share in the royalties. So you're getting all your money back. You're not splitting it with anyone besides the rest of your team. But labels are great for some artists. They do are very still very powerful. Uh, they still have a great marketing teams that can really help you focus. They help you to get uh, sync licensing, and sponsorships and things like that. So they do, they do serve a purpose for some artists, but every artist just has to really look at their situation and see what works best for them and what's most important for them. I've learned that it's not just about music, it's about business too. As an artist, you are the business. Like uh, Jay-Z said, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. It's different ways to make money. I think as a, as a smaller artist, you know, it's about the hustle.
4: You can watch the entire documentary on FT.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Special thanks to FT video producer Donnell Newkirk, to Jess Smith for producing this piece, and to Breen Turner for mixing it. And a musical note before we go about Radiohead, one of the earliest bands to leverage technology. The English rock band streamed the release of the album Kid A more than 20 years ago. That's prehistoric in internet time. In 2007, they made the album In Rainbows, available as a pay-what-you-want digital purchase. And this month, the bands released an interactive exhibition, timed to the reissue of Kid A and Amnesiac. It's downloadable on computers and video game platforms. Radiohead produced a psychedelic experience together with Epic Games, the developer behind the wildly successful game Fortnite. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. We'll be off for the next two days for the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, but make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and Mark Filipino. Our editor is Jess Smith. I'm Joanna Gao, and I've been hosting for Mark this week. We also had help from Peter Barber, Gavin Coleman, and Michael Bruning. Our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley, and our theme song is by Metaphor Music.
9: How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
1: Magnus Hayes, back home after a a sojourn in Mauritius. Good break?
9: No, Alec, I haven't been there in two years as a result of the lockdown. And I was so impressed with what I saw. New roads, new shopping centres. There's just so much development going on in Mauritius. It was very good to see. And very safe. Extremely safe. You just don't – you're not worried. I mean, we South Africans walk around locking our car doors and and the Mauritians just look at you and they say – What's the problem? And we realize we're living in an unnatural society in many ways, and uh, they are just so relaxed. There's just no crime, no murders. Um, there's no physical assaults. There's no hijackings. It's, it's a normal society, in other words.
1: Do they have exchange control there? And I'm asking this because I've been going through quite a lot of uh, a family member's uh, financial affairs, and the more – I look at it, the more I get angry about this Regulation 28, which has forced South Africans to keep 70% of their retirement assets in South Africa because it actually just makes you go backwards continuously. Do they have that in Mauritius, anything like this Reg 28?
9: No, they don't. They have total freedom with what you can do with your money, what you like, and no questions asked. They do ask questions about money laundering, no question about that. But once they're happy that is legitimate money, they say, "Where do you want it, sir? What currency do you want? And and how soon can we do it for you?" It is such a pleasure, uh, uh, you know. Again, that's a normal society. We are so used to dealing with the with the rules and regulations of exchange control. You know, it's embedded in our banking system. It's embedded in our lives. They, we don't have. We they don't have regulation twenty eight. And the point you're making is that the media and the investment community at large, the investors themselves, are now starting to say, we're not making money with our pensions. We are talking about seven years, almost 10 years, that our rectum funds barely uh, uh, have beaten the current inflation rate in South Africa, and in some cases have actually not made a cent. Now that is not good, and people are realizing that there's a big train smash coming. and it goes back to that regulation 28-2010 uh, uh, that says only thirty percent offshore. and as a result of two things, well, the rest of the world has had a fantastic economic growth uh, period and we've had a terrible period. and uh, we've become poor. our pensions have uh, have actually losing money in real terms year after year after year. And, and people should be made aware of this. And the industry is very, very quiet about this. Not a peep about Reg 28 or any amendments to why? Reg 28.
1: Why are they quiet? Just unpack that for us. Uh, and, and, and first of all, how Reg 28 came in and why the industry is not screaming about it because it's their clients who are getting poorer.
9: Well, they're starting to see that. We noticed yesterday Coronation reported its results. For well, the seventh year in a row, Coronation's assets and the management have actually declined. So there's been no real growth for Coronation, and you'll see the same, I bet, at, at uh, Alexander Forbes, um, Alan Gray, and Ford and those big companies. Our market is not growing. It's shrinking. But, and, and, and this is purely my own opinion, there's a very nice arrangement between the asset management industry and Treasury as to protect the industry from outflows because you will have outflows, and 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 that keeps the money in South Africa. But ultimately, it's not their money; it's the investor's money, and they should have a say in the situation. And, and the late Alan Greenblow and I often spoke about this. It's quite a shock, shocking situation where billions of rands flow towards the asset, asset management company, and you and I and other members of pension funds, whether individually or collectively have very very little input as to what happens with your money it's a question of send us your money we know better and you must be happy with what you've got and that situation is starting to become a big factor and and, and more and more I sent you an email as one example of, a, of, of someone who said hey what's what's happening my projected numbers have been declining over four years. It's, it's, it's coming down and down and down and down. At least yes, has somebody who's taking interest in his pension funds. A lot of people don't take – they don't care. They shove it in the, in, the, in the bottom drawer thinking that one day, you know, there'll be some money for them. And, and in fact, the reality is that their purchasing power or their future purchasing power – Is being eroded at an enormous rate as we speak.
1: This inability to take responsibility for for your own financial affairs is probably at the root of it. But I guess uh, it's only when you open that bottom drawer after how many years that you realize the marketing, the messages that you've been given are not actually the truth. Because you're not retiring, your your pension has not grown because you've been forced to keep seventy percent of it in South Africa, and South Africa's economy has been struggling for at least ten years, let alone just the last uh, you know the last seven. But Magnus, let's just go back a little bit in that and and, and understand this. If you look at it from a cynical perspective. If you have to keep seventy percent of your retirement money in a country, then that means that the rest of the world, or the whole world's financial institutions, are not competing for that money. In other words, there's a, a, a finite number of local institutions who would be who you can go to, and that finite number means. Uh, If the one is slightly better than the other, well, so be it. But they charge you for the money that is being put with them or that they're managing for you. If there were no regulation in 2018, in other words, if you were allowed to put your money anywhere, your retirement funds anywhere in the world, you would presumably be able to pick Schroder's in London or uh, a, a company in the United States or Australia, if you fancied that, rather than being forced to go to the South African financial institutions. And am I am I being too cynical here?
9: You're on the right track. Uh Alec, there's an, there's a major element of that. And I'm quite sure the spokespeople of the asset management industry will come back with a very nice polished re- re- reply. But it's 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 to a certain extent, it's it's true that it's a protective cartel it, it, it's very, very well remunerated. People are making huge amounts of money. Once you're in the pension funds industry, if, if you, you take Coronation, they made a profit of 4 billion rand plus. 25% of that goes to their staff as as bonuses. So it's a very, very highly uh, uh, and a very profitable industry. And if you still make it big, if you've got scale, I mean, that's where our few remaining millionaires and billionaires Have been created in the last couple of years is in the asset management industry and i speak to a lot of people in the industry the smaller players they battling to get size because it's a question of the big five or nothing they're getting all the big deals but if they had to open the doors to foreign competition fees will fall fairly dramatically if you look at the vanguards and the black rocks and if you see what they charge to manage money versus what our our, our pension money uh, companies charge is a tremendous difference. So it is a little bit of a closed shop and, and some people are benefiting and it's most definitely not the investors who are in those funds.
1: So why don't the investors shout about it? Why does the industry or people, financial advisors, not say, but hang on, my clients are being prejudiced by this?
9: Well, again, another aspect of the industry, a lot of these big institutions, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but you can work it out yourself. If you're an aligned advisor or broker with that company, your your loyalty must be to the company or you'll get excommunicated very, very quickly. So your, your independent advisors out there are, to a large extent, doing this and acting in the best interest of their clients. And it's also the pension fund consultants we should be raising this issue. But this is a raging hot topic, affecting millions of people. And I get so angry when I see these beautifully written articles by the insurance companies saying, you're going to be poor one day, you should be saving more. And the returns have been so poor. I mean, I, it is just shocking how poor the returns have been. You never have uh, certain outlets in the media wanting to discuss this because it, it, it affects their advertising. But it's, it's right now it's, it's, it's not a great situation for a great deal of people and this needs to be you know um, aired and discussed and practical solutions should, should, should come forthcoming. I mean I was very surprised that I couldn't find one journalist when, when the new amendments to the regulation 28 came out about two weeks ago, not one journalist made a comment about the fact that you still have a 30 percent cap. On offshore investments. Not one. They were all talking about the infrastructure and they're all going to pump money into infrastructure, but they were deathly quiet about the elephant in the room.
1: So you have raised your voice about this. Have you been penalized?
9: I'm independent. I don't work for any of the big companies. Fortunately, I. Uh, I'm the master of my own destiny, and I work with a lot of companies, and they have not put any pressure on me because I don't work for them. They they, they know it. I know it. And the minute they start putting pressure on me or try to put pressure on me, I will stop dealing with, with them, and I will really expose it. But that I'm, I'm different. I have a different situation. I'm very, very fortunate to be where I am. Other advisors are not so fortunate. They will join a big company, uh, become part of the advisory uh, brokerage team, but they will be very sure to toe the line. They will not, uh, it'll be in breach of the employment contracts. They will not criticize their own company. So it's up to people like me and yourself and others who are are prepared to get, get out there and say, guys, this needs to change. The pension fund industry. Is 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 all in favour of 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 the asset management industry, treasury, and then uh, to the detriment of the poor members who think, "Oh, I belong to a pension fund. I'm okay." It's not okay.
1: So this infrastructure fund or allocation, clearly, it's it's really just another tax on savers, on retirement savers, because the government is now working with the retirement funds to ensure that there's money that goes into infrastructure projects in a country where the track record is infrastructure is a invitation to plunder. We've seen that with Madhupi. We saw that with Kusili. Where's the confidence that this is going to be different? Because it now appears as though through the amendments, it's actually going to be, you're going to be forced to put money into a potential Madupi or Kusili.
9: Yes, it is. It, it's, I think there's been a lot of horse trading behind the scenes out of the public layer between Treasury and the asset management industry about quid pro quos. If you support us on this score, we'll support you on that score. But I, I, I don't, at this point in time, I'm, I mean, might be out of line, but we're going to pump more money into construction infrastructure. And again, we there are no guarantees about the safety of that money, the controls, I mean, we've been writing about this for years and years and years. Money disappears into a, into a black hole and there's no accountability. I would be very, very worried if a great deal of my pension money goes into this much lauded infrastructure spend without someone watching over my money. And that would be a great, great uh, 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 danger for me, leaving my money in a, in a, in a big pension pot. I would rather take it out. And that's what, in in many cases, we tell our clients, take your money out, pay your taxes now. And the cases that we've done that, and we're talking large numbers, the outcome three or five years down the road has been phenomenally in favor of the person who's taken the money, paid the taxes, and is now in charge of his or her own money. But uh, again, you know, it's a very, very big industry with very sharp, and clever people. And they know how to do PR, they know how to spin a story. But uh, we get emails like that daily, guys are saying, what can I do? My money is not growing.
1: So the your advice for people who are getting to retirement age is actually don't It's just cash in your your pension fund or whatever, pay the taxes and then become the master of your own destiny and invest it in the way you want to invest it rather than being forced uh, to put 70% of it into South African assets, which have, as you said earlier, have have not performed for the past decade.
9: Equity assets in South Africa have not performed. You might say, I don't want to take the currency risk. You put it into bonds or cash. But but most definitely, step number one is educate yourself about the various options. Do not take the first option given to you by these big investment companies. You have the right to take your money wherever you want to, whenever you want to, at retirement. And ironically enough, once you can get hold of your money, you can swing it into a living annuity and you can still get up to hundred percent offshore allocation if that is the correct investment profile for you, strategy for you. But at least you decide where, with which company, and you can exercise some control over it. Do not leave it with these big investment companies. You're in a big pot. You're just a number. You know that's just not the way. And the to game do it.
1: is against you because they are colluding uh, amongst themselves and clearly colluding with government to promote this Regulation 28, which says, well, you're a South African, so I keep 70% of your retirement money in South Africa. It's just it's just crazy when you're talking about a country that is half a percent of global GDP and a, a country that's much smaller, like Mauritius. You can take that 100% offshore if you want to. These, all of this doesn't make
9: sense. In Australia, you can choose whatever asset class you want, you can you have your self-managed annuities or the supers, they call them. You decide what you want to put in your fund. You're an adult. You have skilled yourself. You take responsibility for your investments. And if it goes wrong, don't come to government. That's the way it should be treated. But we be being patronized by saying, we know better. You are actually a very stupid person, Mr. Hogg. We will tell you how to make money and you must shut up. But your returns have been zero in real terms for seven years now. I would be very angry about that and start asking questions. I wonder
1: what the next generation is going to be doing because when we see something like Easy Equities where they've now got a million people, many young people who've never invested before who are investing in equities, and many of them are doing pretty well because they're buying offshore equities and they're investing for the long term. When they get to retirement age and have a look back at the records,
9: I wonder if they're going to buy the stories. I don't think so. I think that the the sale of discretionary uh, um, uh, or, or tax-driven retirement products like uh, retirement annuities are under pressure. Uh, it's harder and harder to truthfully tell a person, you must make use of this every year after year uh, because you get a tax break. It's not a tax break. You're getting a postponement of tax. And if you start doing some clever numbers, you'll see that that's quite true. You're just postponing the taxes. But the price that you're paying is that you're you're going into a captive situation, your money is locked up in South Africa, and if you, whoever you want to believe, you know, about the next 10 years or the next five years, it can be another 10 years of very, very little growth. And um, so you you think you're getting the tax advantage, but you're paying the price in very, very substandard growth. If you'd play around with the numbers on what uh, people have been earning in the United States and Europe and and even Japan, you know, they've been earning for the last 10 to 15 years, inflation plus 10, 12, 15% returns year after year. And in South Africa, you've been battling to get inflation plus one or plus two. And that's why I'm saying most people's pension pots are not growing. And you can see it in the AUMs of, of the large companies like like, like Coronation, which has it's, it's had no growth since... 2014, and that's where our problem started. 2014 is when the growth numbers started diving in South Africa and have stayed below 2% for seven years now.
1: Well, it's a few months since I last spoke with Melanie Vaness, the CEO of the Peter Maritzburg Chamber of Business. Those were tough times in July, Mel.
0: Oh, gosh, I don't care to revisit them. Thank you. Yes, they were awful. Absolutely awful.
1: You are having to revisit them at the moment, though, with the, the commission. Who Who is putting together this inquiry?
0: It's a human rights commission. I hope that they'll use the information that they gather to, to take some action because um, I think this collective non-responsibility is totally unacceptable. Um, you know, it wasn't a little uh, economic glitch. It was a total and utter nightmare, and we've got to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Um, and those that were complicit in it, they must face the full might of the law.
1: And do they have any teeth to force an action or reaction to what happened?
0: Well, I mean, I think they don't, if, they, if there's a case, they don't hesitate to take action in the interests of uh, of human rights. Um, that's evident in the action that they took against our municipality uh, regarding our landfill site. Um, they did take that matter to court um, to ensure that something is done and that there's some sort of compliance. So I've been impressed with the action that they have taken.
1: Take us through what your contribution was to the inquiry. In other words,
0: what you told them. I, I got invited to come and testify, and, um, and it was a difficult uh, engagement in the sense that I had to revisit all of that in my mind again um, and had to say some things that I'm sure were probably not well received by many people in government services, but it's the truth. And I have a mandate for my members, and I, and I needed to tell that truth And the truth was that that we found ourselves completely and utterly alone at that time. Um, There was very, very little response in the first couple of days from from SAPS, being able to try, we we try to raise people, people that we work with on a regular basis, couldn't reach people. You've heard subsequently our KZN police commissioner went on paternity leave in the middle of it. We, We were unable to get help on the ground. So we battled. We battled for a couple of days completely on our own, and, and that's com- that's unacceptable. I see subsequently there was some testimony um, to say that there wasn't much cooperation from, from the KZN SAP side when, when National came down. So I think there's got to be action taken. It's completely inexcusable that in, in a crisis like this, we find ourselves all alone.
1: The story the public is being told now is that the police in KwaZulu-Natal was uh, overstretched and that they need effectively more resources. So give us more money, we'll have more people, and then should this happen again, we'd be able to handle it differently. Do you buy it?
0: No, I, maybe SAPs are under-resourced, um, maybe it was unusual circumstances, but we didn't even see those that were on the ground responding. I mean, I don't have to, to defend that position. Everybody watched on TV as uh, as SAPs stood by and watched people load TVs into the boots of their cars. Um, there were reports from the ground of, of SAPs uh, saying to people, go ahead and loot, um, we're not going to do anything. So we were also told by, by SAPS members that it took everything in them to stand down. They were instructed to stand down. They weren't allowed to respond. And so that, that instruction had to come from somewhere. And we've got these highly paid intelligence units. Why don't they get to the bottom of it? Who, who was behind it? Um, I think the businesses and the communities that live in these areas deserve to know the truth. Why was there such poor response? Why were they instructed to stand down? Why, why did we find ourselves completely alone? He was actually calling the shots.
1: And you did mention that there wasn't that much support for national. What do you mean by that? When police came in from other parts of the country, were they not being supported by the local KwaZulu-Natal police?
0: Uh, yes, I saw uh, an interview, um, the former Minister of Defence, saying when the army arrived here, they battled to get cooperation and information about what was happening on the ground. I mean, we were crying out for the army to come and help us. For for days on end, begging for them to come. Um, and when they arrived, you would have thought we would have been waiting with with open arms to deploy them to the ground. We we it took so long to get people on the ground. It was it was so disturbing. I, it might have felt longer than it than it was because we were in the midst of it. But it was definitely days, you know, before we before we saw anything on the ground. And I think at the end of the day, uh, Merrittsburg, I think, got 120 soldiers, and they were deployed to protect government infrastructure. It's not as if they were deployed on the ground to, to help the private sector. Community stood together. Community stood alongside each other and barricaded the path to, to their local supermarkets and things. Private security and community did that. Uh, SAPS came in a couple of days later. Our municipal security, we started having meetings probably on the third day. Um, but in the beginning... You couldn't raise anybody. And it's not as if we don't speak to people on a regular basis. I mean, I speak to the brigadiers. I know who they are in charge of the various police stations locally because when we have crime unfolding, we phone them. I have their cell phone numbers. We weren't able to get a response.
1: When we spoke uh, in the heat of the battle, as it were, in July, you said that the feedback you were getting from business owners who'd had their businesses raised was that they would take the insurance money and not reopen. Have you got an update for us on what's actually happened?
0: Um, There are a number that haven't, um, that there's been no movement, and I think they're still waiting for insurance payouts. Um, Some, I understand, like the Edendale Mall will build a smaller version. Others have mitigated their risks, so they've put in some of the lines of their business and moved other operations elsewhere. Some have rebuilt Others that will rebuild will look to rebuild elsewhere in town. So I think you'll find that areas like Edendale that were particularly badly affected, those businesses will relocate elsewhere in the city, which means that all those small businesses that relied on the foot traffic from, from large business in the area will suffer. So that's the issue. Some will rebuild like um, Brookside Mall. They rebuild the checkers. They've got a tenant committed to that. Um, but Edendale, um, it's not going to happen. As you dive past, you can still see a lot of the destruction. It's as it was then.
1: Has there been a knock-on on property prices or rentals in Peter Maritzburg? If presumably some businesses are, are leaving or won't be going back into business, has that affected property owners?
0: Uh, it hasn't yet. We haven't seen any any massive change to to the property market yet. On the commercial side, uh, the commercial agents are saying that they. Uh, that some of their rentals they 're stepping back you know when they 've got to do renewals they 're not uh, they 're not getting increases they 're actually stepping back there 's a move out of for for businesses out of the center of town uh, to the neighboring suburbs uh, where, where I'm assuming that they they feel it's safer um, our, our town center is abominable uh, i don 't know how how we 'll ever get that um, resurrected again we 're going to try to work with the city to to do some work in the very centre of town to start seeing whether we can't uh, attract people back there. But I don't think you're going to see the kind of confidence that we really need to see the reinvestment in Peter Maritzburg unless we do what I ask the politicians to do, uh, and that is to stand with me um, and to say that they, they think what happened in July is totally and utterly unacceptable, that they welcome any investment in the city that brings jobs and economic growth, and um, that anybody that was complicit in that must face the full might of the law. To this day, that hasn't happened. And I don't know how you how you inspire confidence, re-inspire the businesses that were invested here to start off with. Uh, give them some sense that if this had happened again, they wouldn't be all alone. And... It's also uh, dealing with the trust deficit. There's a massive trust deficit, and understandably so, because we we have people on, uh, you know, that work in our factories and on our shop floors, and the feedback that's come back uh, is very disturbing. It's things like our our politicians. Some of them were complicit, um, so they can't stand up and say that uh, that the looting was wrong. That at the time in in community, while they were saying one thing to us, they were saying something else to community. So. Publicly, there needs to be a stand and a statement about this. What do we, as the government of this region, believe about what happened in July? If it ever had to happen again, do we have a, a suitable response in place? And what would we do to mitigate it? And how does government feel about the investment that currently is in the city? Because some of the stuff that was sprayed all over those walls, it makes people feel like the investment isn't welcome. And, and that's awful.
1: The voting in Peter Maritzburg, was that reflective of any consequences from the public, at least, to what happened?
0: Yes, I think, I think there was a, there was a massive reaction from the public. Um, the ANC came in just under 50%, which for this area is absolutely unheard of. We have the same mayor back again and probably a more balanced council than we have had in the past in terms of, of our position voice. We're, as you know, under administration for the second time in 10 years. We're still under administration. So we just hope that um, that, that wake-up call at the at the polls uh, will see everybody pulling together to get our city right. It's unacceptable. People that live here are passionate about our city. We, we love Peter Maritzburg. We love KwaZulu-Natal. We, we're proud to be the capital, but a capital shouldn't look like this. A capital should uh, should be a reflection of of the whole province and uh, we are going to have to work very hard and we're going to have to work together if we want to see things change.
8: Now we've all heard the expression dark marketing and as far as I'm concerned it's associated with maybe slipping cigarettes to teenagers at parties that take place in places that we don't want to go to ourselves. But I suspect it's a whole lot more than that. And I want to introduce you to Matthew van der Volk, He's an executive creative director at the agency VML and and he has more than 15 years' experience in dark marketing. Um, Matthew, a very warm welcome to you. You know, Immediately, I wanted to call you Lord Voldemort because, I started uh, uh, that thats that's where we kind of place dark marketing, but you make the point that it's not intrinsically illicit, so maybe a good starting point for our conversation is to tell me what dark marketing is. Is there a new definition
7: yeah, and um, I think for me what's what's really important to remember around dark marketing is that I suppose it's the term dark that kind of throws people for a spin. Mm but it's more about the fact that it's not in the public eye. It's more personal. It's more about understanding the people that you're speaking to on a more individualistic basis. And it's trying to find new ways to communicate with people that are perhaps a little bit more relevant to consumers. And it's about inventing media. So I think that, you know, traditionally we have TV, we have radio, we have all the above the line and below the line that we're used to kind of hearing about. But where dark marketing really starts to um, shine, I guess, is in the space of inventing new media. So it's about looking at the entire marketing mix. It's not just about communications. So, for example, you know, we might look at distribution as a channel. And who are the different stakeholders across the distribution network for a particular brand that might be able to influence and impart some kind of um, marketing message on whoever the stakeholder is at that point in that purchasing journey?
8: If I had a rant for every time someone said to me that in order for brands to succeed, they have to be brave, I would be a very rich person and we wouldn't be doing this interview. But the reality is that creativity, you suggest, is where the magic of dark marketing lies. But it's also up to brands to be courageous, to be brave and to break their own habit and then for consumers to break a habit of traditional approach as well.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that what's what's quite different, I think, with dark marketing is the approach to story. So with traditional marketing, we're all kind of going out into market, trying to shout the loudest and say why we're so important and why everyone should consider us. Where dark marketing is different is that it considers the story of the individuals that it aims to serve and tries to find a way for us to be part of that story. And so the creativity is slightly different. It's not about creating the next big concept. It's about saying, who are these people? How do they operate? What's important to them? What's their story? So it's a little more listening and a little less speaking. And you'd be surprised how many um, channels make themselves available. It's about looking at every single moment in these consumers' lives and where we can become part of their lives. Um, one of the things at VML and r that we, that we often talk about is brands that live in people's lives. So how are we becoming those brands that are more important, that have relevance in, in our consumers' lives? So it's a little less about kind of advertising and a little bit more about, you know, is it available in terms of the distribution? Is the product relevant? How are our consumers using our product? Um, you know, sometimes the way that we intend our product to be used is completely different to the people actually using it. And so it's about listening to the consumer, unlocking those insights, and then leveraging them in everything that we do.
8: So beyond listening to the consumer, and one would assume is that's what brands and their agents should be doing anyway, it's almost marketing 101, Uh How does a brand need to start recalibrating its approach when it comes to looking for those hidden or dark channels that we've been referring to?
7: I think that one of the things that we often talk about doing as kind of brand custodians but don't actually do that well is we say, yes, we're going to do something innovative. Yes, we're going to do a test market. Yes, we're going to try out this new way of approaching this consumer and then we roll out our five million Rand TV ad. Uh, I was and say then that, followed shortly
8: stand. afterwards by a billboard.
7: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's about kind of mixing up your marketing mix and trying things. Um, what works for one brand isn't going to work for another. And you know, it's it's also about fatigue. So as we're inventing new channels, it's not about just it's not good enough to just kind of come up with new ideas for these new channels that we invent. It's about coming up with new channels consistently. Another way that we, that we can kind of look at this is, um, I don't necessarily believe particularly in dark marketing approaches in always looking at what your competitors are doing. And I know that's a little bit controversial, but I think that there's more value in looking out of category. What can a, for example, luxury car manufacturer learn from a discount clothing retailer in terms of merchandising? Um, What can you learn as an orange juice brand from a luxury car manufacturer? And what I mean by that is looking at the context. So if you walk into a supermarket, all the orange juices are merchandised next to each other. How are they standing out? And if you're going to buy a luxury car, all of the car dealerships are normally clustered together. So how do you stand out? How do you access the market? How do you start using these unexpected places and spaces and tactics to apply to completely different industries? And that's where it starts to become really creative and really interesting, is we almost take an approach to a car dealership in that example of merchandising as opposed to your traditional comms.
8: So in conclusion, um, give me an example of where your world of dark marketing has been successful beyond tobacco and cigarettes. What has stood out for you? What have you done that has illustrated this uh, this approach to branding?
7: I think that this has been particularly in the automotive industry, which is highly competitive, It's about um, one of the kind of anecdotal examples that I use, and I won't use brand names because of NDAs, but um, we were tasked to kind of elicit additional uh, test drives for a a particular car manufacturer. And so what we did was we created geofences around our competitors because we knew that... um, The people going to test drive our competitors' cars were already in the market for a new car. And by understanding their mindset, we were able to increase our test drives by a factor of 50%. So these simple tactics, it doesn't also have to be a major campaign. It can also be tactics. And as I kind of often say, is it doesn't have to be a complete shift of your marketing. I think it's just adding it to the mix. It's about being able to look for different tactics. And I think that the last two years has taught us as brand custodians that, you know, none of us are excluded from regulation. We can all be regulated in the way that we, I mean, if you look at the events industry, everybody in that space has been regulated over the last two years. So I think it's really important to think about how our brands our products and our services could possibly be regulated and thinking about how we might pivot.
8: If I've taken one word out of our conversation Matthew it's the word listen. I just think that everyone needs to listen a little bit more because once you listen it's where the good uh, it's where the good ideas flow from. <laughs>
1: Well, it's Wednesday, and thank you for being with us today. We look forward to being back in your company. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.